the Sage of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book six, The Summer of Wood and Iron. Chapter four, A Ghost and a Lobbyist. Martin squeezed the excess brine out of the last handful of meat bits that he had pulled from the crock. Did she say how she got this raccoon? It sounded like she wasn't going to get it as quickly as she thought. He dropped his handful into a wide metal bowl in front of Margaret. She didn't say anything, she replied. Margaret dumped in a small cup of ground peppercorns, coriander, and crushed garlic into the metal bowl and resumed kneading the ingredients together. No, she doesn't talk at all. Martin was about to disagree and say that Mara does talk to him. How else would he have known that she didn't think she would get it in time for their pre-assigned meeting date? He stopped at the inhale. He realized no good could come from winning that minor point, and just let it go. He had no interest in their local wild woman, no matter how voluptuous, but jealousy needed very little to sprout and grow. He had enough on his plate without having to put out self-inflicted grass fires. Margaret pushed the seasoned meat bits into a hand-crank grinder, clamped to their ad hoc outdoor table on the deck. I thought you said you had to get to the Hendricks place this morning to resume your welding. Well, I do, but I don't want to leave until Dustin and Carlos are back. He held another bowl under the grinder to catch the pink cords of ground meat. Uh, We keep being short-handed these days, what with Trevor gone to Manchester and Judy still... You never had a problem with morning sickness when you were pregnant. You worked right up until your due date, both times. I know, said Margaret, as she refilled the grinder. I got queasy sometimes, but I... Oh, yeah, toughed it out and did your work anyhow, I know. So I don't see why... Oh, everyone's different, Martin. Margaret took the bowl of grindings and pushed them into a metal tube that looked like an oversized cake decorator. Maybe it really does hurt as much as she says. Martin rolled his eyes. Yeah, maybe. But the result is we're still short two people. We're not even keeping up. There's still the firewood and the root cellar. Martin, your stressing over it won't get it done any faster. Everyone's doing what they can. Andy is weeding your front bean garden, just like you asked him. Dustin and Carlos are at that Lloyd guy's place working on his barn, or something. Anna is on patrol, and Lucas is watching the chickens. Martin stood up so he could peer down into the little stream's valley. Lucas stood near the stream, leaning on his shepherd's staff. Lucas! Martin hollered. Don't just look at the chickens. You're guarding them. Keep your eyes on the woods. That's where trouble will come from. Oh, don't be too hard on him. He's just a boy. Margaret used her metal tube to squeeze out soft rods of ground meat onto a nylon window screen tray. Uh, It looks like it'll be another hot one today, she said, mostly to herself. Uh, These are going to cook as much as dehydrate. Well, boy or not, he's got an important job to do, said Martin as he sat back down. You said yourself you saw that bobcat again. The chickens need their free-ranging time to forage and find enough to eat. We can't afford to lose any of them because a boy's mind wanders. Martin's rant was cut short by the sound of footsteps and conversation. Dustin and Carlos walked up the hill to the deck. Carlos carried his wooden toolbox. Dustin held a blanket bundle in his arms. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. 
Back from Lloyd's, <laughs> lucky what we got. Dustin set his bundle on the end of the table with a dull thunk. He pulled away some of the woolen blanket. The irregular block of ice glistened in the sun like a massive diamond. Oh, must be like fifteen pounds, Dustin said proudly. Excellent, said Margaret. Our old one is almost gone. Go put it in the tray and the fridge and pour the drip pan into the bucket on the left. She had to yell that last few words as Dustin had already disappeared inside the house. Carlos chimed in. Yeah, we took down Mr. Lloyd's old ramp. It was too steep. I tell him we make a longer ramp that uses round top wood rails instead of that flat floor. Oh, did less of the friction. Dustin returned, drying his hands on his pant legs. That Lloyd guy doesn't look it, but he's sure one smart old dude. Harvesting ice off of his pond last winter was genius. Gotta say, I didn't mind working in his ice barn. That sun's a killer today. Martin let out a long sigh. He had just gotten Dustin back from his town farm work, and now he would be losing the labor of Dustin and Carlos for several more days while they fabricated a better load-in ramp for Lloyd. The reward of ice in exchange for the labor, however, was too valuable to pass up. Well, now that you boys are back, Carlos, Anna will be done with her shorter patrol soon. I had her only do the shorter loop past the bean field and back. I didn't want her too far from the house. You, however, I'd like to have you do the farther loop out to the little river, the Utopians' camp, etc. Look carefully for any signs of people in the woods. Footprints, uh, broken lower branches, you know, stuff like that. See, Mr. Martin. Dustin, help your mother get that dehydrator set up on the patio to get the best sun. Then, split some more wood. I've got to get over to the Hendricks place. Before Martin's welding mask darkened, he could see Nick drop another scoop of wood chips into Tin Man. The putter-putt of his generator was lost in the sharp crackle and hiss of the welding arc. Martin knew he was tracing around the base of the new gasifier, attaching the hopper to the burn chamber. But all he could see was the little circle of light created by his welding arc. Once his seam was complete, he stood to stretch. Tyler and Charles walked awkwardly toward the new trailer frame. They carried the small engine, cradled on straps slung between them. Martin and Nick helped guide the engine into position, and a couple of bolts inserted through the mounts to take the weight. Phew! Charles wiped sweat away from his eyes with a none-too-clean rag. I used to be able to muscle that thing around myself, yeah, but now? Oh, I swear. Must have doubled in weight since Tyler got it back together. Not done yet, little brother. Still gotta rig up the radiator and PTO clutch. Tyler trudged back to the garage to fetch the remaining parts. Martin resumed welding on the new engine's gasifier. If it was a race to get the gasifier done before the engine was complete, Martin was at least a half a lap behind. Martin felt the tapping on his boot. With his visual world reduced to a spark and the sound of crackling filling his ears, tactile input was the only communication channel left. It was Nick. They're ready for the first test, Nick said. He pointed to Charles's truck rolling slowly up to the new trailer. Martin did not win the race. They were going to use the truck's gasifier since Martin wasn't done yet. 
Tyler guided Charles in with hand gestures, like an airport marshaller guiding a 737 into its gate. I got the truck's chamber about a quarter full, just enough to get the truck repositioned and some to do our test with. Martin was happy to stand upright for a while. He helped connect the flexible tubing from the truck's wood gas pipe to the rebuilt engine. Tyler had jumper cables strung between the truck's battery and the little engine's starter. Charles went through his own NASA-like checklist. Uh, oil level good. Coolant topped up. Clutch off. Valve set. He gave his brother a thumbs up. Tyler connected the last cable clamp. The little starter motor whined with a high pitch for 30 seconds. He gave it a minute to cool down, then connected the clamp again. After another long series of whines, the engine skipped and sputtered. Martin opened the bypass valve part way to lean out the mixture. The engine smoothed out, puttering like an old tractor engine, which is what it was. The group had seen too many successful gasifier startups to jump around excitedly, like they had the first one. Still, there were congratulatory smiles and thumbs-ups. Let's test the next stage, shouted Tyler. He moved the jumper cables from the starter motor posts to the front of the generator. With one hand holding the black clamp above the battery, he signaled to Charles. His brother pulled the clutch lever. The engine stumbled and nearly stalled under the load. But Martin quickly closed the bypass valve just a bit. The engine recovered, but at a slower speed. It was clearly laboring, not idling. Tyler attached the black clamp to the battery. A few sparks flew. He rushed into the driver's seat to check on the amp meter. He stood on the door sill and gave an exaggerated thumbs up over the hood of the cab. The generator was making power. Now for stage three, shouted Charles. He plugged the welder into the generator. The engine labored a little harder. With heavy leather gloves on, he held up the grounding clamp, which held a strap of steel. With his other hand, he held a rod in the welding rod grip. When he touched the two, a blinding shower of sparks poured onto the ground. This prompted a more enthusiastic celebration, expressed with fist bumps and high fives. Tyler signaled for the power down and pointed over everyone's heads. Mrs. Hendrick was backing out of the mudroom door, carrying a wide tray with both hands. Charles peeled off his mask and gloves, unplugged the welder, and threw back the clutch lever. Martin! said Tyler. Can you dial back the throttle to an idle? Oh, I think so. Martin pushed on the knob of the throttle cable until the engine began to stumble. He backed it out just a few degrees. The engine puttered slowly, skipping occasionally. Oh, cool. I'd like to let our rebuilt engine idle a bit. Give those rings a little low-stress run-in time. We can try some serious welding after we eat our lunch. Mrs. Hendricks started to bring the lunch tray toward the men, but frowned at the puttering engine. She walked past them, around the corner of the barn. The four men followed her, a pied piper with food. She set the tray on a weathered picnic table. Well, it should be a little quieter around here, she said. Everyone sat down. Nick looked eagerly around the tray. Dried apple wedges, ribbons of rabbit jerky, and cold hominy. He glanced at Martin with a slightly tragic expression. There were no oat biscuits. Charles reached for the bowl of dried apple wedges. His mother snatched a wooden spoon from her apron pocket and smacked his hand. 
he yelped. The other three men slowly pulled their hands back and hid them under the table. I let you get away without saying grace the other day, but I don't want to let that become a bad habit. Tyler, will you say grace? Tyler bowed his head. Dear Lord, thank you for our daily bread, and give us the strength to do your will. Amen. The prayer was recited quickly and in a single breath. Four sets of hands snatched up bits from the bowls. I saw my corn ghost again this morning, Mrs. Hendricks said. About four o'clock. Really? Oh, why didn't you wake us up? protested Tyler. His mother chuckled. You boys used to be such light sleepers. Just about anything used to get you bolt upright in bed. Uh, lately, though, I think your extra work has wiped you out. You didn't even hear me shoot. You shot it? Well, I shot to one side, uh, just to scare it. I thought it was moving into the corn, and I was right. Come see. Mrs. Hendrick led the men, each still chewing a mouthful and carrying a handful of whatever they could grab off the tray. They walked between the rows of corn stalks that were about shoulder high. The tops had tasseled weeks before. Thin ears had white silk showing. See? Mrs. Hendrick stopped at the end of the row. She pointed to strips of pale green husk on the ground and a tangle of silk. In the dirt also lay a few small white beads. It didn't find much. The ears are much too young. The kernels are barely formed. Ah, this looks like a raccoon's work, said Charles, poking at the baby kernels in the soil. Yeah, what I saw was no raccoon, son. It stood up and was nearly as tall as these stalks. I fired a twenty-two round to its right. Make a little pop from the house, a little ripping noise in the stalks to scare it off. And it worked. It ran back that way. Well, it sounds like we need to resume our patrols, said Tyler. Everyone turned to walk back toward the barn. Oh, your corn looks really good, Mrs. Hendrick, said Nick. He let one dark green leaf after another slip between his fingers as he walked. Oh, I thank you, Mrs. Hendrick said over her shoulder. Oh, sure wish mine looked like this. Well, you know, Nick, began Martin, there's a lot of good growing tips at the Grange meetings. Nick's head writhed back and forth slightly like a teen who realized that they had promised to take out the trash, but forgot. Oh, no, I know. You keep telling me. Uh, but that Grange sounds so, uh, I don't know, like a cult or something. Oh, it's not a cult, Martin said with a snort. Well, yeah, they can be a little too ceremonial. But do you really think I'd join a cult? Oh, well, no. Well, of course not. They're just ordinary people. There's old guys in there who've got lots of experience. I've learned some tricks and tips in just a couple of meetings. Members pledge to help each other grow stuff, kind of like a mutual aid group for gardeners. I think you should join, too. Oh, I don't know, Nick hedged. Everyone took their places at the picnic table again and finished off what they had not carried off in their hands earlier. When everyone was licking fingers or wiping their hands on their pants, Mrs. Hendrick pulled a cloth bundle from her apron pocket. All eyes were fixed on the bundle. Well, now that you boys have finished your meal, you can have dessert. She unwrapped the bundle to reveal four oat biscuits. Nick's face lit up like a kid on Christmas morning. Between the four of them, 
the biscuits were gone in just a few seconds. Okay, said Tyler as he stood up. That's enough gorging. Let's get to some serious work. Nick, stoke up the truck's gasifier. Martin, you can resume your work on the new burn chamber. Charles, let's get those trailer parts over near the welder. Mom, thanks for lunch. He kissed her on the top of her head. Tin Man's fire hadn't gone out completely, so it didn't take long for Martin to have the embers glowing bright, blue smoke flowing, and his generator running again. Tyler and Charles pulled a longish single-axle trailer close to their big welder. They propped up the front of it on a couple of sawhorses. After ramping up the engine speed, Tyler cut off the tongue with a battery-powered angle grinder. Charles knelt under the front of the trailer and began welding on a short stub of four-inch iron pipe to the underside. Martin tipped his helmet down and resumed welding on the new gasifier's burn chamber. In the heat of the day, the air behind the mask felt thick and stale. The smell of rust and ozone stung his nostrils as he worked. When his work was complete and the burn chamber ready to go, he was ready for a break. The rest of the new gasifier's parts were mechanical attachments. They didn't need a welder. Tyler and Charles had a pair of wheels on an axle positioned under their long trailer. The stub of pipe was the steering pivot. The now four-wheel trailer could be steered and follow around the curves. The two men had pulled the trailer to one side so that Charles could weld a hitch receiver to the back of it. Well now, called a voice from near the road, you're all a bunch of busy bees. It was Jeff Landers, glistening heavily under his wide-brimmed hat. With all this noise and welding sparks flying, this place looks like Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. Well, Jeff, said Martin, what brings you way out here? Ah, doing a little lobbying, Jeff replied, dabbing sweat off his forehead with a wadded handkerchief. I was looking for the Hendrick boys, uh, but you too. You being here saves me a trip. A trip for what? I'll get to that, Jeff peered over the gasifier that Martin was working on. What are you boys up to? That looks like a lot of hot work on a hot day. Martin explained Charles's plan to tow a line of trailers to the coast and back. Increased volume would make each trip more worthwhile. He also explained how they had to first construct a more powerful engine-generator-welder combination to do the frame modifications. Charles wanted to have at least three articulated trailers to make a sort of road train. Landers seemed keenly interested, asking many questions, and about the portability of the new generator-welder. Tyler noticed Martin talking with Jeff and patted his brother on the back. The pair stopped work and wiped the grime off their faces and hands as they walked over. Tyler gestured for Nick to throttle down the new engine. Mr. Landers, exclaimed Charles, what brings you to our side of the hill? He offered his freshly wiped hand to shake. Well, mind if we sit in the shade, said Landers. He pointed to the grass beneath the big oak beside the Hendrix's gravel driveway. I could stand to get out of this sun. Tyler gestured for Charles to bring over a folding chair from the barn. While they walked toward the shade, three men came jogging down the road, looking tired and out of breath. One of them carried a shotgun. They'll have to 
cross up here, shotgun man said to his companions. He pointed down the hill toward the woods that Martin had commented on the day before. Duncan and his guys are on the back road. They'll try to push him this way. The knot of men jogged on, having taken no notice of the men under Hendrix's tree. Shouts could be heard from the woods down the hill. Trouble? asked Landers. Uh, maybe a little, offered Tyler. Uh, been some talk of pilfering out of gardens. Looks like those guys might have seen some. Oh, Mr. Landers, Mrs. Hendrick exclaimed. A social call? <laughs> How lovely. I was making up some staghorn tea for the boys. Uh, let me go and fetch that. She turned and hurried into the house. A speeding penguin. Charles returned with the chair. Lander sat down with a long sigh. Others commandeered cinder blocks or buckets for seating on and gathered beneath the oak. Mrs. Hendrick returned carrying a small milk crate. Within the crate were six tall glasses of deep pink water. Droplets of condensation wriggled down their sides. Ah, said Landers as he wiped the cool glass across his forehead. A cold drink on a hot summer day is a mighty fine treat. He sipped loudly. And just like pink lemonade. Ah, ice cold. Mrs. Hendrick suddenly got a worried look and glanced from face to face for any hint of discontent. Uh, I didn't put Lloyd's pond ice directly in the tea to chill it. Uh, no, no, I, I used a double bowl uh, to cool it. She nodded reassuringly and made bowl shapes with her hands. Ah, not to worry, not to worry, Landers sat up. Boys, that welder set up you've got there has a lot of potential. But as much as I'd like to linger here for a couple of hours and hear more about it, I got others to visit today, too. I've come here to ask you boys for a favor. A favor? A favor? Both boy brothers asked at the same time. Yes. At tomorrow's Grange meeting, I plan to ask the Grange for a petition on a warrant article that will be on the agenda for our next town meeting. I'd like to see if the membership would weigh in on it. Folks appreciate what the Grange has done. I think if folks hear the Grange's take, it'll make all the difference. Wait, said Nick. You two are Grange members, too? His finger pointed at Charles, then Tyler, and back. Yep, said Tyler. Second degree. Ah, first degree, said Charles. Yeah, what's the warrant article about? Ah, yes. Landers took a long sip of his tea. There's been trouble brewing in town here lately. What with how it's been a drier than normal summer, water's been getting more precious. Nearly everyone's got gardens and animals that need watering, not to mention just for their families. Some folks with streams running through their property have been building dams to make ponds to store up enough for their uses. As you might expect, the people downstream are up in arms, yeah, literally sometimes, after seeing their water dry up. That sounds like what was going on over at Glenn's place, said Tyler. The guy across the road dammed up Wilson Brook to make a pond for his cattle. Glenn's neighbor was fit to be tied. He had nothing for his family or his sheep. Glenn was telling me how he actually had to stand between them to keep them apart. He even took a couple of stray punches before their wives came in and talked some sense into him. 
Huh, mused Landers. I hadn't heard about that one. The chief and I responded to a squabble yesterday over at the old schoolhouse. Mr. Lane had a dam across that little feeder creek. He and the man across the highway, a Mr. Chalmers, had begun arguing about it for a week. Apparently, Chalmers snuck over that night and tore down Lane's dam. The two of them were wrestling right out in the road. Mrs. Chalmers ran up to town hall to tell us about it. Martin grimaced a little at that news. He had been considering creating a little pond on his stream. His gardens needed more water than his rain barrels could provide, and pumping from his well was laborious. The stream was free water, and a pond would make it easier to fetch. He shrank a little as he sat on his bucket, realizing that the little stream left his property and wound through Nick's property, and then around to the people behind him. He could have made a lot of enemies building that pond. Uh, can the town do anything about it? asked Martin. Nah, not really. State's no help. From the DES, the dam's got to be over four feet tall, and the pond upwards are two acres. So they don't care. That's neither here nor there, anyhow. What with all this outage stuff, the state's got no resources to enforce its own regs, even if they wanted to. There's no town ordinance that says a body can't impound water, so we got no teeth either. Folks with the new ponds tell us to butt out. Folks with the dry streams are demanding that we do something, or that they will. And I'm afraid if we don't do something, this problem is going to come to blows, or worse. What's that got to do with the Grange? asked Tyler. I asked the warrant article. Landers downed the last of his tea and wiped the back of his hand across his mouth. I'm trying to play Solomon here with a warrant article for the whole town to vote on. If approved, it makes a new ordinance that lets folks have a little pond, but they can't stop the flow for more than a day at a time. They've got to have a spillway with equal flow downstream. Details like that. It gives both sides something. If approved, the town would have some say in enforcing the matter. And it wouldn't necessarily just be us selectmen being busybodies. It would be the will of the people, and all that. I think this town is pretty evenly divided on this. I figure that if the Grange petitioned their members and spoke out in favor of the warrant article, it could sway the middle. So... I'm out canvassing the membership to ask for your support for my warrant article. Landers stood up with some effort. I'm not asking you for a yes so or no, just that you'll consider the peace of the town at your meeting tomorrow. I'll be there to present the idea and to introduce a guest speaker that might be of interest to you boys. As Landers walked slowly back to the road, he checked off three names on a folded sheet of paper. Well, there you go, Nick, said Martin. Another reason to join. Add your name to the petition. In the latter part of this chapter, I've tried to walk a fine line between Chekhov's gun and the goat's ice cream. That is, between the author telling only what's absolutely crucial to the story or some totally unrelated tangents that have no bearing on the plot. This to do with the water rights arguments in town. I've mentioned Chekhov's gun before, I think. If I hadn't, 
One of Anton Chekhov's rules for stage plays was that if you put a loaded rifle on the set, someone must use it at some point. Otherwise, don't include it. That is, there should be no peripheral unused details, everything lean and mean. The goat's ice cream reference is a personal flag. We used to give an old lady rides to church once she could no longer drive. She was the inspiration for the Ruby character in Book Two, by the way. She had a habit of telling long-winded stories about, well, it's just about anything, and those would include large amounts of completely unnecessary details. While telling us about some difficulty in getting her prescription filled at the pharmacy, her tale would include bits about when she was a girl in Maine, and how her mother seemed to care more about the lost goat than her, as evidenced by the fact that the mother would give the goats treats, but never once stopped to buy her kids ice cream, etc., etc. The goats and the ice cream thing had nothing to do with her CVS's customer support, but she told us all about it anyhow. I'll let you know right now that when I included the background about the water rights disputes in Cheshire, that it's not a Chekhovian rifle. It will not become a major part of the plot. On the other hand, the water disputes are not really the goat's ice cream either. For one thing, I like to include some glimpses of the story's world outside of the direct plot. After all, reality is a complex mix of things. Some details are relevant, some details are just part of the background. We're not given only the strictly critical facts in our lives. The noise of politics is a lot like that. I think readers have grown accustomed to the Chekhov's gun phenomenon such that if an author mentions something, the reader immediately begins to wonder where that tidbit will show up again and be pivotal. Foreshadowing is good, of course, but not everything needs to be a foreshadow of something else to come. Real life isn't so pared down to be just the bare-bones essentials. There's a whole world outside the side windows of the car, not just the windshield. I try to use these glimpses out the side windows to round out the picture of what the siege world is like, give some color to the character's world. In a grid-down world in which people have stopped simply surviving but starting to rebuild, conflict over resources are bound to crop up. Water is an ancient bone of contention. It's vital for life, crops and livestock, but water, being a liquid and all, totally ignores our notion of boundary lines. Without a strong central authority or a complex legal system to mediate, the people in that grid-down world will have to negotiate for themselves their own new agreements on how to share resources. That's a factoid that's not strictly critical to the plot, but it is part of the world that the characters live in. There aren't police or sheriffs to call when you don't like what your neighbor is doing, or courts to sue your neighbors into compliance, etc. Things are much more DIY than we're accustomed to now. All that is to say that, as the story goes on, don't expect everything to follow Chekhov's advice. Some of it is a look out the side window, but I will always try to steer clear of goats and ice cream. Thanks to all of you who are monthly supporters of this project. I do hope you found some value in the extra bonus episodes, whether it's entertainment or useful info. If you have felt entertained or informed, consider buying me a cup of virtual coffee at Buy Me a Coffee, or better yet, 
Become a monthly supporter at either Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon. Links to those are in the show notes. Putting together these podcasts while also writing Book 6 does take a lot of time every week. And speaking of next week, I'll have an interview for you with Jonathan, who had to get through a two-week power outage due to an ice storm. As preppers, we tend to learn what works and what needs work when the preps are put to the test. I hope you can join me for that discussion. For now, thanks for listening.